everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Katherine Druckmann. I am talking today with Doc Searles and Kyle Rankin and John Todd from a company called Quad9. We have actually a lot to talk about uh, as it relates to Quad9, and most of it is all about DNS, which is going to be really fun. But before we get into that, into all that, I will remind everyone to check out our website at reality2cast.com. That is the number two. You can sign up for our newsletter that we occasionally get around to sending out. <laughs> you can send us a uh, contact and you can find a lot of supplementary information, including links that will go along with this episode and others. So please check that out. Um, and, and with that, I will hand it over to John to tell us a little bit more about himself and what Quad9 does and why uh, they're doing some really interesting work right now. Um, because I hope you already know who I am and Doc and, and, and Kyle are. So, yeah. <laughs> so we'll hand it to John. Thanks, thanks for the introduction. So yeah, I'm John Todd. I'm the general manager for Quad9. Um, background on myself, I come out of the, 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 deep, the deep nerd state. Um, <laughs> so I've been working with um, working with the internet and actually this was just a reminder there's a big tw tweet thread in the last day or two about how long have you been on the internet amongst a bunch of my friends and been on the internet since 1989 um, and working with Linux since um, since it was a, a wee toddler um, also I'm, I'm a big you know sorry I'll go get some tomatoes there I mean I'm a big BSD person as well um, but um, uh, so um, mostly working in the internet industry, uh, like internet service providers, co-location providers, uh, satellite data providers, and then a couple of uh, bypass, a couple of stops through the voice over IP land, which was quite interesting. And then also massively multiplayer games. But the thing that's tied all those together has been DNS. Um, every single job that I've had, the DNS has been a significant portion of it for the past 25 years. And um, so a while back, I was working at a, at a nonprofit called Packet Clearinghouse PCH. PCH has been doing DNS um, on a large scale, a global scale, for about 25 years itself. Um, they're, a, again, a nonprofit. Um, and we were approached by a company, uh, sorry, another nonprofit, um, you'll see a trend here, um, called Global Cyber Alliance. And they wanted to create a DNS firewall. Um, we quickly determined that um, running that uh, DNS, uh, basically a recursive resolver with with security capabilities was something that was extremely sensitive. So we decided to, at that point, create a separate entity, another 501c3, uh, which became Quant9 um, based in Berkeley, but it was neither uh, Packet Clearinghouse nor GCA, nor our third founder, um, which we approached um, during this process, uh, which was IBM. Uh, IBM donated to Quant9 the 9.9.9.0 slash 24 network which is the which is our namesake, right? Quad nine is the IP address that's that is our primary um, recursive resolver address. Um, so they came in as the third partner, and this was about going on five years ago now. Um, we started with about um, uh, in a beta of about a million end users, mostly small government education in North America. Launched in November 2017, um, and uh, from there on out, we we actually don't know how many users we have, and that's a that's a feature, not a bug. Uh, because we don't track any of our end users. But we've been growing roughly, um, uh, you know, depending on the week or the season of the year, between 1% and 3% per week uh, for the last number, several years now, which is a pretty frightening growth rate. Um, and uh, we're now in 180 some odd cities around the world. 
where we actually have inst instances of our recursive resolver. We are in 92 countries. So what is it that we do? Um, so Quad9 does recursive DNS. So every time you want to get a resolve a name to an IP address or do any of the other things that the DNS does in which there are many things that aren't quite as simple as just resolving names to IP address, um, your computer sends or your device sends a query to a recursive resolving system of some sort. Typically that's run by your ISP or if you're in a company, it's, you know, there's a local resolver somewhere else in the company. And uh, it does that mapping for you by querying down through the DNS trees to find the various owners of various domain names, get the information back and then feed it to you. Um, Quad9 basically is, a, is another way of doing that. So instead of using the local resolver, you use Quad9. But what we add on top of that is that we have around 20 different threat intelligence providers that are our partners. And they provide us with lists of different threats, domain-based threats. Um, these are phishing sites, malware distribution, command and control servers, um, stalkerware, um, any number of things that end users don't want to get to, that they don't want their computers to go to, even if they accidentally click on something, or if there's some app on their computer that they don't control, if it tries to get to something. So we block those um, based on what our threat intelligence partners tell us to block. So, um, so that's one reason why people use Quad9 and why we're different than most recursive resolvers because most recursive resolvers don't have that additional layer of security. The other thing that we, that we do is actually what we don't do. Um, and that is that we are extremely privacy aware and privacy sensitive and privacy honoring. So we don't log anything about the end users, meaning that there's no way that someone can reverse engineer, not even us, can reverse engineer what queries an individual person is doing. So we discard all that data. We never store it to disk. It never gets sent out of the location from which in which the query is received. Um, so we're extremely privacy uh, concerned. And so that is another reason why people are interested in using Quad9. M many of the commercial options or even the ISP options that people use today, there's some, there's often un unusual or unexpected behaviors, uh, shall I say, with where that data is going and who has access to it. Um, and that's especially concerning um, in parts of the world that are not quite as necessarily as free as um, uh, Western Europe and North America, as an example. So um, Quad9 functions to both provide security and privacy to end users. Um, some of the things that we were early adopters of are encryptions of DNS encryption. We were the first large recursive resolver, in fact, really the first recursive resolver of any scale to roll out um, DNS over TLS, which is one of the two um, dominant encryption methods now to encrypt data from clients to the recursive resolver. So no one can intercept just by looking at the wire. They can't see what DNS queries you're doing. Um, and so we also support DNS over HTTPS, which is the, the, the next um, protocol to come out for DNS encryption. Um, and we continually work forward to try to push um, to push other recursive resolvers into a better privacy and security stance, right? We're a non-for-profit. We don't make any money. Like more people that use our network, actually the worse off we are <laughs> because we have to spend money to, to get, you know, larger customer base and there's no incremental revenue we get from that in any way. Um, but what we allow um, everyone to do, or what we, what we do is as an industry, we push everyone forward. We kind of move the bar as far as what people need to do from a privacy and uh, security perspective. So we're really proud of that as well. Um, 
We, uh, the big news in the last year or so has been that um, we were originally a 501c3 based in California in the United States. Um, one of the things that the United States does not have is it does not have a national set of laws describing privacy. Um, there are interesting laws uh, coming up in, on a state level um, about how data can be treated and what it can be used for. But really, Europe has been leading the way in that um, a variety of countries in Europe have really pushed for things like the GDPR. So um, our European users were asking us, well, if you're so concerned about privacy, like why are you still in the United States where there are no laws dictating what you can and cannot do with this data, you're essentially, we're taking you on your word as far as what you're doing, um, which was a very good point. Um, so we in February announced that we were moving uh, the organization to Switzerland. And we did that in February. Um, so uh, the organization is now a foundation, it's still a nonprofit, uh, but based in Zurich um, with the assistance of SWITCH, which is one of the large research and education and, and security um, organizations in Switzerland. Um, and so we fall now under the Swiss data protection, uh, data privacy protection laws, which are extremely stringent as far as um, what it holds us to, the standards that it holds us to. Um, in fact, arguably, they are more uh, stringent than the GDPR itself, um, where there are potentially criminal repercussions if we treat data the wrong way uh, versus civil repercussions, which is, I think, what just GDPR offers. So, um, so that's when really um, our, our background story, you know, the genesis of Quad9 and where it comes from. Um, we are continuing to expand into more cities and more locations. As I said, we're in 92 countries now, I think, 93. Oh, no, wait a minute, 94. I think, because we, we turned up uh, Oslo yesterday. Um, so uh, we're, we're continuing to expand um, and, uh, and really driving some of the privacy and security models forward, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. Um, so that's, that's the, the nutshell explanation. Great. Well, that's great. Um, one thing, you know, we have some of our listeners are pretty, uh, pretty geeky, I suppose. And but some of them aren't necessarily. And I don't know how many of our listeners um, are aware of how revealing uh, inspecting DNS traffic can be. So, <laughs> yes. uh, and, you know, and so it might be, I was, it might be good to maybe elaborate a little bit to, for those listeners to know sure. what can someone tell about somebody if they do log this traffic and sure. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's actually startlingly revealing um, almost to the point where there's just looking at DNS traffic, you can really figure out what someone is doing with almost perfect detail. Obviously, you can't see what they're typing into forms. You can't see what they're posting on social media, but you know that they're going there. So things like um, your shopping patterns, your political affiliations, um, uh, how frequently you are on social media. So creating a profile of that, age demographics, gender demographics, um, uh, um, medical history, they can tell when you're going to the doctor or when you're not, right? The, these are things that are all visible by looking at the website, just the names of the websites that you're visiting. Uh, remember that every web page that you view as well has a relatively fingerprintable set of things that it downloads. You know, when you're pulling up a whole page, there may be 20 objects in there, each of which, um, depending on what version of the page you're looking at, might go to slightly different origin sources or maybe slightly different um, uh, hosts. Uh, based on what it is you're, you're viewing. So those things can be used actually to create fingerprints that are even deeper than just the obvious things about you know what, where you go to shop and 
know, what sites you're visiting at that point in time. They actually may actually reveal specific pages or page footprints inside a site. So DNS is extremely revealing um, and, and it's, it's essentially what they call metadata um, that shows the patterns of what you're doing, even if it doesn't show the actual content itself of where you go, it, it's, you can create an extremely accurate profile on a household or on individuals within the household just by looking at DNS data. Um, and it's really, it's the last unencrypted protocol. That's not quite true. There's, there's still the, the very beginning part of HTTPS, which is still unencrypted. That's going away soon. But DNS is kind of the final frontier where anybody who wants to get information about what you're doing, they can reliably look at DNS flows and figure that out. Uh, quite accurately, and as soon as that um, as soon as that goes away, the the architecture of uh, observation and um, surveillance is going to change uh, and and have to shift gears. And there's there's for better or worse in that too, because it's not just um, not just are there illegitimate reasons for looking at domains, but in some cases, like enterprises, there are legitimate reasons for that, where you're trying to prevent people from going to malware sites. So. It's, a, it's an interesting knife edge to walk in that there are some places where observation of DNS is actually a reasonable thing, but most places it is not a reasonable thing. And there's a whole debate about you know, DNS over HTTPS um, and its intentional obfuscation um, inside of HTTPS uh, and how that's potentially um, a problem for enterprise for, and, and for you know, parents, as an example, who want to do things like filter porn or, or other sites. So uh, again, it's, it's the continuous discussion of privacy versus security to some degree, like what level of privacy do you have versus security that your network operator or your, your network owner can apply to you? Um, and who does that and under what circumstances? We, we're trying to take a relatively neutral approach on that. We're trying to be both um, to the advantage of the end user, we're trying to encrypt that data and make it extremely private. At the same time, we're not going to work against network operators. Um, we're not going to try to disguise our traffic or do anything else that makes them um, want to block Quad9 as a, as, a, as a potential risk as well. So there, again, it's a knife edge of how you walk through things. So on, on the flip side, for the more technical listener, uh, there's probably some of our listeners that may have even gone to the extreme of setting up like a pie hole, which for people who aren't familiar with that is like a Raspberry Pi, you run specialized software, use it as a local DNS, that it has its own set of sort of filtering and it might be useful for them to have someone like yourself that's expert in this to sort of yes. contrast uh, that versus using Quad9 and what kind of protections you get on either one or don't. Uh, actually, um, we don't need to contrast it. They are complementary. <clears throat> which is which is one of the things that I really love about DNS. DNS can be stacked. You can you can layer it. So we actually uh, work quite well with Pi-hole. So Pi-hole, um, you can apply your own local policy to your household, as an example. So you can uh, maybe you want to block ads. That's not something Quad9 does. We don't block ads because they're not malicious. That you might not like them, <laughs> um, but they're not malicious. So that's not something we block. However, Pi-hole can be configured to do that. So. All the devices in your household might talk to the pie hole, but then the pie hole itself forwards its queries. It's, it's called a forwarding cache. It forwards its queries out to Quad9 and gets the additional bonus of having those queries being uh, run through our filter set. And then also they're probably talking to a very nearby cache. You know, we have caches 
close to most of the world's population at this point. So it's, a, it's gonna be a relatively quick return as well on cache data. And you're connecting to the same cache that thousands or millions of other users are connecting to as well. So there's some advantage there. But no, I would definitely say that PyHole is a, is a great candidate for um, a layering in front of Quad9. And we actually encourage people to do that. Um, it's possible to configure your laptop, your phone, or whatever it happens to be to talk directly to Quad9, right? You can make it go to 9.9.9.9 and our secondary addresses. That's great. We, we encourage that. But what we'd really like to see is people actually having that control and doing something like a pie hole or a forwarding cache on their local network so that those, so that, you know, whatever it is, 80% or so, 70 to 80% of all queries are cacheable. Um, we don't want to see them. <laughs> we don't want to see every question that everyone asks. If you've got a cache locally that can answer 70 or 80% of that, that's to our advantage. We don't have to handle that traffic. It's the end user's advantage, meaning it's faster. Uh, it's more secure, meaning that we don't even have the chance of seeing it. Um, and it also then lets you apply local policy. So you want to block ads or you want to block porn or whatever else it is you want to apply to your local network. Great, do that. We're really big fans of, of not having everyone point directly to us. We'd really love to see everyone have a local cache of some sort where they can do those kinds of things. And is, is that a similar recommendation that you give to enterprises who may want to use a Quad9 upstream, but they want to have some sort of local policy uh, yes. enforced as well? Yeah. Yes, definitely. We, we, an enterprise is really an important one to do that because they, they almost all, they, all of them want to have some local policy that they apply. Um, in enterprise, it's also a little different. Sometimes they want to have split DNS or split horizon DNS where they have certain answers that are answered that aren't public DNS. And so by having a local forwarding cache, they can actually put those specific answers inside the local device so that they can have uh, local servers that aren't visible to the outside world. Of course, Quad9 only answers for public, publicly available DNS results. Many enterprises don't have that. So yes, we strongly advise enterprise and anybody else to put a forwarding cache in there. Um, the, the last reason we're not really as fond of, but is also legitimate, again, mostly in enterprise, is for logging. Um, we, since we have no ability to log and uh, that's not something we will ever do, um, having the forwarding to cache at the edge of the network allows you to actually create a logging model so that you can see, as an example, um, when something is blocked by Quad9. Now, that's actually an important point. We actually tag blocked domains or blocked events slightly differently than we, than we tag regular um, what are called NX domain or domain not found events. So your pie hole is an example. In fact, there's code in the pie hole that looks at the responses back from quad nine and can differentiate between a natural um, host not found result and a host not found result that we tag with the special bit that allows you to say, oh, this is a host not found because quad nine blocked it. So then you could, if you're running PyHole or one of these other um, forwarding caches, you can actually see, all right, they'll, you know, um, Bill in accounting um, had something that just tried to go to a command and control server. Does his computer have some kind of infection? Let's go chase that down and figure it out. I was just wondering, uh, you know, what, what your funding model is and, uh, and how, how you make money. I mean, you don't have to um, make money, but you do somehow, <laughs> you pay people. Well, Correct. Right. Um, so our, our funding model is primarily donations from industry right now, um, but there are other sources of donations as well. But we are sponsorship funded. Um, so one of our biggest sponsors is, is no secret, it's IBM. 
they provide to us a huge amount of, of support for, of course, the, the domain, or sorry, the, um, the IP address that they still uh, provide to us, and that's on permanent. That's, a, that's actually ours, they transferred that to us. But also um, organizations like uh, Packet Clearinghouse, who I mentioned earlier, um, they provide to us a global network, um, again, millions of dollars a year, uh, huge numbers of millions of dollars a year in infrastructure that they provide to us to operate the systems. Um, we have, again, partners like GCA who gave us funding to kick off, but we are also seeing other funds come in from uh, different partners who are using our services as an example, who see um, value from an enterprise perspective or from an end user perspective. They're saying, well, okay, great, Quad9 protects my hundreds of thousands of end users. And we try to talk to them about how, okay, so if we're giving you this benefit, isn't it great? Couldn't you give us some money to continue operating? And that's reasonably successful. Um, so we're continuing looking for new sources of funding, um, trying to find both NGO and um, you know, private foundation sponsorship that we're working on. Um, but uh, it's, it's primarily industry and, and grant-based at the moment, so I would describe it. But the, the vast bulk of our, of our, what I would describe as our budget is in-kind donations, whether that's infrastructure or assistance or um, uh, transit and things like that. You know, it's funny. I mean, uh, many years ago, I, I, I spent time caring about what DNS I, I used because I was, it was a solo operator, as it were. But, but I, I'm, we're in a new house now here that we're in temporarily for a while, and we've got uh, Comcast Xfinity. And as I just checked, so I've got 75.75.75.75, which is the Comcast thing. I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. So, and I'm wondering if it's worth making the muggles. I'm not a muggle, but I'm playing one, uh, acting like one right now. Is it, is that part of your strategy to go after them at some point and say, you know, you really ought to do this so, or not? So I'm, I'm going to waffle on that answer. I'm going to say yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to the website, we have instructions on, yeah, as an example, really how, good. You, how yeah. you change your windows or how you change your Mac, or um, in some cases, even how do you change your home Wi-Fi router or your, whatever your edge gateway is so that it hands out quad nine as a DHCP. DNS server. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so end users are clearly who we serve, but I will say that that's not how we get the vast majority of our queries. Hmm. Most of our queries are coming in from uh, larger organizations where there's an IT department of some sort, or there's a person who by making one decision has the ability to change the DNS server for thousands of end users. So this is educational institutions. It's small, medium government. It's small, medium enterprise, um, it's you know, city governments, um, they have the ability to just by changing one setting, point everyone to quad nine, typically through their forwarding cache, which is great, um, but sometimes directly. Um, so that's a, also an option. Um, so as an example, New York City, um, uh, if you walk the streets of New York City, there are all these Wi-Fi kiosks all around the city. Um, if you associate to one of those, you'll, when you look at your DHCP, let's watch your DNS settings, it'll be quad nine settings. So the, the, the city of New York is one of our, is one of the, one of the organizations that uses quad nine to protect the citizens, which is, which is pretty fantastic actually. Um, but that is the model by which we see most of our traffic. It is these, it's, it's a single administrator making a decision and influencing thousands of people. It's ISPs. There are a lot of ISPs now who are deciding that they don't want to run their own DNS infrastructure. It's getting really complicated and the standards are evolving way too fast. And so they're just like, all right, I'm done. Um, 
can we just run a forwarding proxy and send everything out to quad nine? And they do. So that's how things are changing. Um, it, it's, I mean, the website that we have shows end users how to change and we certainly encourage that, but the, the volume of traffic we get from that is very small in comparison to the larger models. So one of the main things that Quad9 seems to be advertising that it does is, is sort of threat intelligence and blocking based on threats. Could you talk maybe a little bit more about how some of that happens sure. uh, on your side and how you identify things? I know that, for example, some, some uh, DNS services along these lines will look at like brand new, will treat brand new domain registrations differently from others and have that sort of like tagging. So maybe you could talk about, talk about some of that. So Quad9, you know, the, the analogy I've used, and it could be a bad analogy, is that Quad9 is like we own transmission lines. We don't own the power plant. So what we do is we transmit and, and deliver the threat intelligence data, but we don't actually produce it ourselves. We rely on our threat intelligence providers to do that because they're, they're amazingly good at identifying threats. And we have roughly 20 to 25 in the, in the stable at any one time. Um, some of them are open lists, meaning that they're, anybody can download them, but most are not. Most of them are closed. They're commercial sources. Um, and let me digress this for a second and say, why, you know, why do these people give you this really valuable data, right? They're giving away the keys to the kingdom, uh, meaning it's, their, it's what they do for a living. Um, and there's good reason for that. Um, so the data, the domain data that we get from these, these threat intelligence providers um, is is probably, and, and I can't say this in all cases, right, but it's probably going to be protecting people who probably wouldn't buy it in the first place. We're a free service. Um, so there's no reporting. We don't give you any specific ability to say, well, what, what were the blocks I got today? There's no way to customize it. Quad9 is not customizable. It's kind of you use Quad9's filtering or you don't. There's, there's a, it's really a binary decision. So most of the companies that are, that are giving us the threat data recognize that people who are valuable customers are interested in much more detail about their threats. And that's usually enterprise. So, um, but what they get from giving the data to Quad9 is that they immediately, as soon as they give us threat information, they immediately get a worldwide view into what the threats are that they have that are useful and which ones are not useful. So once, as soon as they give us a new domain, as an example, that they know is a botnet, they're going to get thousands of, of hits on that. And they're going to understand that from a volumetric perspective, remember, they're not, they're not seeing anything about the end user, but they're going to see like, was well, this ramping up or is it ramping down? What's the rough geography? Like we'll tell them what city we saw these things in, um, with the hits in. So they're getting really, really useful information about the threats that they're giving us. And that's what they get in return. Um, that's what that's the exchange that they get from us. That in turn helps them kind of focus in on all right, what what are the valid threats? Which ones are legitimate? Um, you know, are these can we expand our model? So we get a, an improved result back from them as well as part of that virtuous cycle of of information exchange. Um, so what are the threats, um, and and how are they determined? Each threat intelligence provider has their own magic sauce. And that's kind of what makes Quad9 a little different than most other DNS-based um, systems. We'll take data from almost any um, reputable source um, as long as it has a low false positive rate, meaning as long as we're not blocking things that we shouldn't. Um, so some of them, as an example, we have one in France, just to pick one out of the air, we have a, a provider in France who focuses only on stalkerware. 
they take apart Android apps and pull out all the domain names of people who have written these tools just to spy on people's phones. Because the, you know, the, the phone, the, the software has to somehow report back to a central server, screen captures and all the other things it's doing. So they just focus on stalkerware. Um, so how they do that, I, that's, I mean, I can generally tell you how they do it. They take apart Android apps, but I don't know specifically. And I'm, we, we, Quad9 is not particularly interested in that as long as we know that the results they're giving us are effective and that there are no false positives. So we take different threat feeds that do stalkerware. We've got a bunch of DGA or you know, uh, dynamically generated algorithm domains. Um, we have some that look at newness, like a, a new domain name that gets freshly registered. Um, there may be a, a, a hold period that some of them put on that. If we don't get complaints from end users saying that, hey, I was really trying to go to the site and you're blocking it, then we're fine with that. Um, we typically don't get a lot of false positives because we're fairly stringent with our threat intelligence providers. We have documents that we have them sign as far as, you know, how, what are the constraints that they have on what they can give us. Um, we have very, very good luck right now with low false positive rates and high blocking rates. Just to give you an example, we see about, at this point, um, we need to update the website, but we see about 100 million blocks per day. And it varies. We had like 200 million a couple of weeks ago when some particular very chatty botnet um, lit up um, and they were being blocked. But 100 million blocks a day roughly is kind of what our, our normal volume is. So we know we're doing a good job. Our, our customers aren't telling us that they're getting false positives. So how our threat intelligence providers generate the data is kind of a black box that we're not particularly interested in knowing all the details about. Um, and again, because we combine this from like 20 different companies and sources, um, it's different than a commercial, most, there are other DNS firewall services out there. Certainly there are plenty of them, but most of them will tout how great they are because of their particular threat analysis. Um, and they would be very loath to show like, where does that data come from or how do you produce it? We take 20 of them and combine them together. So it's almost always the case that we have a broader profile of threats that we mitigate just because we're happy to take the data from everywhere. There's no commercial agenda that we're trying to spin where we're saying, well, we're better because we have more awesome threat analysis. We have 20 companies who do awesome threat analysis. So that's kind of a secret sauce for us. Kind of along the same lines, I was wondering, how do you evaluate which countries you will and will not operate in? Like, what is the threshold <laughs> for bad behavior? On behalf yeah, of the yeah good, good question. Um, so, I mean, the, really, the, the, there, there are some obvious candidates that we are, are, have not been invited to and whose requirements would be unacceptable at the moment. And, you know, and the big obvious, the, 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 the elephant in the room is mainland China. Um, since mainland China requires um, basically a license to operate and they require certain, um, they require keys to be installed in a certain way and they require basically the ability to see into your encryption. Um, that's a country in which we're not operating and I don't anticipate that we will. Um, countries that have that kind of stipulation about being able to uh, intercept and log traffic is that's counter to our mission. Um, we are actually going to be um, sometime real soon now um, starting up a uh, essentially a human rights council to answer that question with more detail um, so that we can comply with a very standard model of way, a way to say, this is the criteria we have for what we find acceptable or not acceptable. Um, so 
really right now, mainland China is the only one. Um, and there have not been requests from other nations that we would consider um, objectionable or they've, they've put constraints on how and, and what we answer with. This is a good segue to, <laughs> to the, the, the court yeah. case um, yes. that we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. So that all said, we received, uh, actually very shortly after we moved to Switzerland, we received an injunction from Sony Music Germany. Um, and uh, because of the way that the laws in Europe work, even though Switzerland is not officially part of the EU, um, it is part of a, 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 a treaty agreement that allows civil lawsuits across borders. So Sony Music Germany um, gave us a lawsuit, or I'm sorry, gave us an injunction through the courts in Hamburg that said, and I'm going to paraphrase greatly here it's because it's, it's really a long discussion, but that said that Quad9 by resolving a certain domain name, which I believe is located in this, the host is in Ukraine, but the domain name was a Tongan domain name for the .to was the top level domain. Uh, but by resolving that domain name, which contained links that linked to another site, which allegedly had copyright infringing data on it. So we're two, we're three layers away here already. Um, but by purely by resolving that domain name and allowing German citizens to get an IP address as a result, that we were participating in or, or that we could prevent that copyright infringement. Therefore, we were liable. Um, and so their, their, their assertion is that Quad9 had to stop resolving that domain name um, due to some, uh, some complex um, poorly communicated information, uh, basically the injunction landed before we were able to respond to it. So in order to remain within, Quad9 is a very legally um, uh, uh, compliant organization, meaning that we will follow the law. That's what we do. We're, we're providing security, preventing people from being defrauded, right? So it would be a bad idea for us to try to say that we're not going to do something uh, according to the law. So by the injunction, um, we actually did block and still to this day block that domain on our servers in Germany for German IP addresses. So we're in compliance currently, but it's still, it's a very limited effect. Um, we objected to this um, uh, injunction on a number of counts. Um, some of them, what you would describe as more technical, you know, like the fact that we didn't, we believe that we didn't get uh, sufficient notice, but also, you know, talking about how the courts, you know, does the court have the ability to do this, but really also addressing the, the root issue, which is that we believe that in German and, and both in German as well as EU law, that it seems to be counter to the legislative intention of the way that the law is written to allow a anybody, in this case, a corporation, to demand that another entity, in our case, a foundation, stop resolving a domain name um, with essentially no other, no other recourse. I mean, the recourse is that we, we go to court, which seems to be somewhat of an absurd concept because every time now we get a request from somebody to block a domain, does this mean we have to go to court? And so this was not the government asking us to block a domain. This was Sony asking us to block a domain. And if you extend that concept out, it's a pretty scary idea that 
that a company or an individual for that matter, anybody who claims to be a rights holder can demand that another organization stop even resolving the domain name, that, that's a pretty terrifying concept as far as I'm concerned, because there's no limit to that. Um, anybody who can assert even the most basic hint of rights holders um, capability would be able to censor the internet uh, to a large degree. Um, that's somewhat terrifying. Now, we believe we're strong advocates of copyright copyright owners to be able to enforce their, their rights. No arguments with that. We believe, however, that recursive DNS is really far away from that. Um, I mean, really far away because we have no relationship with the, the operator of the domain name. We have no relationship with the, the, the operator of the server. In fact, it's in a different country. Um, and realistically, we have no relationship, we have no contractual relationship with the end user. Um, they just point their their recursive uh, settings at our system. So it's a, it's a very, it's an unfortunate ruling. The news we got back today is that, and this was really not particularly surprising to us, is that today the Hamburg court, we, we did file an objection a month or so ago, a month or two ago now, and the Hamburg court rejected the objection. After all, that was the court that filed the injunction in the first place. So this is not particularly surprising. We are going to take it to the next proceeding. We are going to, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, we're going to appeal this to a different court in Germany um, where we believe that ultimately will be successful because it's, it's relatively clear to us that it was not the legislative intention of the German government to allow anybody to declare that anything was not to be resolved by the DNS. So I think ultimately will be successful, but it's, you know, it's a huge expenditure of time and money and as a nonprofit it's it's draining on our resources and it's unfortunate but it's also to me it's relatively clear that they picked on what they thought was the most unable organization to defend itself they picked on a nonprofit and and also a nonprofit cross borders but that was an ill-founded um, ill-founded decision we've, we've received uh, plenty of support um, from a legal perspective the the GFF which is a a German organization, which is roughly equivalent to the EFF in the United States, has come to our assistance and given us um, some assistance. Um, some of the Association of Internet Service Providers in Germany and the Swiss Rights Organization have all come to try to help us from a legal perspective to, to work in our defense and also to file um, documents that, that object to this as well. In fact, the EFF posted a, um, a letter in our support a few months ago as well. Um, so there are wide ranging implications of this. If, if this ruling is allowed to stand, we think that it's very dangerous because other anybody else who operates anything that does something with the DNS, that has a DNS-ish component, so like uh, antivirus software or um, browser operators, that they're browsers themselves that have um, block lists in them. Anybody who's got something that touch, touch, touches the DNS could potentially, and we believe will be the target of this kind of litigation if this ruling is allowed to stand. So we're, we're taking one for the team here um, for the larger internet and especially in Europe. But you know, as Europe goes, so kind of goes the rest of the world with how tooling is built and, and how regulation is applied. So we're, we're really looking to get more support from the world, <laughs> whether that's individuals or whether that's, whether that's um, uh, companies who have something to lose here. Um, to, to help us in our legal defense, because it's, again, again, we're a very small uh, uh, not-for-profit and, and our capital budget is relatively 
slim. And this is this is eating a lot of our time and money that it shouldn't. And I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm frustrated that we yeah, have to a, have to do this at all. It's it, like why are we having to answer this question at this yeah. point in 2021? If you do lose, what's your, I mean, let's say you go all the way in Germany. Um, what do you do? So um, that's hard to say. And I'm, you know, speculative answers here will, will undoubtedly get written up in different ways, but so there's a couple of, there's a couple of things we can do. I mean, we can just, we can keep blocking, but I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that because that's just opening the floodgates. We're just saying, all right, well, then anybody who has any blocking material whatsoever that you want to give to us, you're going to give to us and we're going to have to do it. And I'm not comfortable with that. And I think that the Germans are not comfortable with that because, um, you know, that's, that's kind of absurd. Um, you know, there are options where we could withdraw from Germany so that our servers, you know, we have servers surrounding Germany, right? Every country around Germany has quad nine servers in them. And due to the fact that our system is anycast, that means that anybody in Germany, instead of going to a German server, would get the nearest nearby server, which is operated in a jurisdiction outside of there. So that is an option. I don't want to pursue that option because I think that that's, that's um, kind of the nuclear solution. But mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that we want to be accepting uh, uh, or trying to parse whether something is a copyright infringement or not from hundreds or thousands of, particular, of potential um, endpoints. It's, it's too costly for us. And um, also the infrastructure. I mean, doing the filtering itself is actually costing us. Our servers in Germany are are taking significantly more time to answer queries because they have to go through two filter lists instead of one. They've got to look at this silly first layer of, you know, even though it's only one domain right now, it's the, we have to create two different layers. And so um, it's costing us more just to even operate our normal service in Germany. So there are a couple of different ways that we could, um, we could answer this if we lose ultimately. I'm relatively confident we won't lose ultimately. I, I think that a different venue, a different court will will agree with our arguments, and it's because it, to our reading, what's in the the law is relatively clear. Um, and uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to be any less of a struggle for us. It's not going to be any less of a, an expense for us to do this. So, uh, but if we give up, like if we decided to just roll over today, that would be a problem um, because then that basically says, well, this this was unobjected to, and so they would then take that to every other internet service provider, every enterprise, every university, anybody who operates a DNS recursive resolver, anybody who operates antivirus platforms, all the browser vendors, they'd say, well, you know, Quad9 apparently didn't feel like this was useful enough or they didn't believe their case was strong enough to object. So we're going to come after you and we're going to have, we're going to now litigate with you. And that's, that's a, that's a, it's a bad precedent. So I'm curious, and, and forgive me if I'm overstating the obvious here, but um, is this just a case of the powers that be or these particular decision makers not understanding the underlying, the underlying technology? Or, I mean, it, it um, seems like when you explain it to us, it seems so obvious that you wouldn't want <laughs> to do this. <laughs> so Right. right. And, and, you know, there's always two sides to every case too, right? So, but I, I can say that with, with high assurance that I haven't met anybody who's arguing the other side of the case um, in the industry, certainly. Um, everyone seems to think this is a really bad idea. So I'm confident with that. So the courts are a challenging environment to have very technical questions answered. Um, and that's always been the case. And so uh, when you bring highly detailed technical issues 
into the courts. You're, you, it, it really is the question of who gets there first and who has the potentially a larger volume of, of data, whether or not it's valid or, or reasonable is a different question, but um, it, it's, it's always difficult to litigate technical questions in court. And it, it sometimes takes a number of appeals to get to the right answer. Um, until you find the, the right explanation that you can give and the, the exact right quote that you're taking out of whatever the, the legislative document happens to be. And, you know, it's, it's, not, um, it, it's not an easy process, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, uh, and this is also new territory to some degree. Um, how DNS factors into policy and politics is a really hot topic right now, um, like white hot topic about how countries can manage uh, DNS within their borders or um, how, do you, how do you manage things like copyright or how do you manage anti-terror or malicious software? Like how do you defend your country against those perceived threats? There's a legitimate component where a country does have the right to, to w- whether we believe it from our Western perspective or not, countries have the ability to manage things that they believe are safe or reasonable for their citizens. We might not agree with it, but you can't deny that the country within their borders has the ability to do that. Now that gets back to your question of a while ago is like, where does, where does quad nine draw the line? It's like, should we be in that country or not? So that's the interesting summary question. So far, most nations have agreed that the DNS is not a place to apply legal filters. Some do have them though. To give you an interesting example, um, which is which is a challenge for us, Switzerland. So we are we are a, a not-for-profit based in Switzerland. If you are a telecommunications service provider in Switzerland, meaning an ISP, um, you actually have to block in the DNS. Well, actually, they don't, I don't think they're specific, but you have to block gambling sites um, from a list. Now, how that block is applied is, I, I believe, left up to the the the, the, the ISP. But most of them choose to do it with the DNS. But if you're not a telecommunications service provider, meaning if you don't have a license um, to deliver end user connectivity to the home, then um, you don't have to filter that. Um, and so you, if you go to our website and look in our privacy and kind of our rule of our, our rulings section, um, you'll find actually we, we, we made sure to obtain from the Swiss government kind of a, an understanding or a definition that we were not a telecommunications service provider, specifically to kind of avoid some of those laws that are around certain types of uh, connectivity delivery. And that may be the case in, in other nations as well. So, but for the most part right now, most nations don't have anything that says DNS has to be filtered in a certain way, mostly because there is some, there are relatively enlightened lawmakers in most of these organizations who understand that it's not effective. <laughs> you know, blocking, blocking the DNS lookups for certain sites, if someone wants to get there, is really not an effective way to prevent content from reaching citizens. It isn't. Um, anybody who wants to go to a gambling site is just gonna change their resolver to some other resolver, or they're gonna resolve names themselves with a local DNS resolver, and there, there are several or many on the market that are free. Um, so, and this gets back to kind of one of our overarching concepts that we talk about, which is if you're blocking content that end users don't want to get to, DNS is a great place to do it, like malware. Nobody wants to go to malware sites. 
So they're really interested and enthusiastic about using a service that has malware blocking. But if you tell them that service blocks things that they do want to get to or that they might want to get to, they have a strong disincentive to move away and they will and they do. So by putting in filters, content filters, uh, you know, Quad9 is, is at a disadvantage right now in Germany. Like Cloudflare and Google, who are the other two large recursive resolvers, um, they don't have those blocks in place as far as I was able to determine recently. So anybody using Quad9 who potentially wants to even just see what this site is, they're going to switch over to some other recursive resolver that isn't necessarily homed in Europe. Again, from a European perspective, really bad idea, right? Because now what, you, what was a European service that you were trying to convince people to use is now a non-European service with a totally different set of privacy rules and regulations which apply to it. Um, so it, the, the DNS is great for blocking things you do want to have that end users are interested in. It's a terrible place to block things that end users are interested in reaching. So it, it works both ways. And that's something that takes a long time to explain to legislators and, and judiciary. Do we want to go into Kyle's next question? Sure, I can do that. Yeah, go for it. So um, I have some background on, on core internet infrastructure a little bit, at least have had chat, have chatted with some other people that are in this space. And this is maybe more of a fun question. Um, I don't know whether it's fun or not. We'll find out. But uh, so in some of those talks, uh, what you sort of get is there's this, this camaraderie for people that are working in back-end core internet infrastructure when there's a big problem. So uh, in some examples might be DDoS attacks or when, when someone uh, tinkers with BGP in the wrong way um, from a particular country and weird things happen. And that there's these back-channel chats with, with all of those in the know where they just sort of collaborate on troubleshooting these sorts of things. I just was wondering if you happen to have any personal stories along those lines that you either could tell or were worth telling, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, you've hit the nail on the head and this is, I'll diverge for a second and say that the internet still to this day, even in 2021 is largely based on, you know, the, the, the hackney phrase, right? It's a network of networks. Everyone tries to interconnect with as many, well, most people try to interconnect with as many other networks as they can. And those interconnections are still based to a very large degree, like more than 90% based on trust, meaning that there's no contract that you know, network A talks to network B like, and says, hey, we, we should interconnect in the city on an IX or whether private connect or whatever it's gonna be. So you have to trust that the other network that you're connecting to isn't going to make your life miserable. And that's all on trust. And so you know, the next step down that chain is, well, okay, there's gotta be sort of a personal understanding. The, the technical team at company A needs to trust the technical team at company B or at least there needs to be some their intermediate party like, hey, are these guys okay? Or is this company an okay company to peer with? And if the answer is yeah, generally, yes, you know, I've asked around, you're fine. So that, then it happens. So the extension of that is that when there are problems, the, the, the benefit of that is that when there are problems, there's sort of already a preconceived understanding of who you need to talk to, to solve issues. The DNS space definitely works like that. I mean, there are DNS specific conferences. There was one, in fact, that I started at two in the morning today. It's DNS OARC, which is all of the people who operate big DNS servers and services. We have a technical conference. And as a result of that, start you start to recognize people's names and who does what. 
And the same is true in the BGP world, right? There's there are various national or international organizations where, where everyone gets to know everybody else. So when there are significant issues like DDoS attacks, um, especially if if there is a common risk or a common threat, then yes, we all work together. I mean, we know you know who to talk to. To give an example without naming names other than myself, like the, the Facebook outage of uh, whatever it was a month or so ago. You know, DNS recursive resolvers, of course, saw that <laughs> very, very highly because suddenly all the, the retries, you know, went through the roof for Facebook domains. And we saw a massive spike in our traffic, which we were able to handle without any problem. But we all started to talk with each other like, hey, do you see this? You know, there are chats where we kind of all participate. Like, do you see this? Are you seeing the same thing? And so within a few minutes of the Facebook outage happening, we all knew what was going on. And in fact, we then all, not all, some of us participated in a call where we started talking about, all right, what's, what are we going to do when Facebook comes back online? And is this going to create a problem when suddenly all these, fa all these failing queries become valid? Like, are we going to, are we going to crush Facebook servers? Like with all the, the generated back queries and the back pressure. Um, so yeah, some of us have those conversations under certain duress circumstances. Um, DDoS is one of them, um, but just generally network problems. Everyone generally knows who to talk to. And, and again, that's, that is based on trust that's been built up over years or in some cases decades um, as to you know, this organization or this person even is trustworthy to, to deal with this problem or I can talk to them frankly about it and know that I'm not gonna have my name you know, put in a press release about whose fault it was, right? We all try not to blame the other, especially in circumstances where we have to work communally towards a solution. Um, and, and I really appreciate that. And I like that about the community in general. It's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of what keeps the internet running, despite the fact that it is now an extremely political and money-driven organization. There is still quite a bit of individual um, interaction. That's, that's what makes the, the whole thing work. Well, I think we're, we've come up on... We're coming up on the hour, actually. Close to an hour, yeah. It's been so great. I, you know, it's a good, it's a good episode when we just kind of sit back and listen and enjoy <laughs> oh, the content ourselves. And I'm sorry for talking. We're like, so oh, much. we we're supposed to ask. <laughs> no, no, it's great. This is really great. I'm sure. Um, yeah, as I said, glad. I can. I I, I really love doing what I do, and I I love the mission that we have, and it's a it's an awesome, it's an awesome job, and I I, I just like the fact that knowing that like a hundred million times a day, we prevent someone from getting ripped off or, or their computer from being bricked or whatever. That's an amazing feeling. And um, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm paying off for 25 years of startup work where it was all fun, you know, figuring out how, how are we going to go public, et cetera, et cetera. This is kind of, this is kind of the opposite. Um, doing it for a nonprofit is, uh, is fulfilling personally, even though it's a, it's probably more work than, than for profit, for profit side of life. Oh, that's great. It's um, it's good stuff, and I'm 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 really glad you could join us, and I'm really glad that Kyle could join us because you know it's Kyle's favorite protocol. <laughs> so it seemed <laughs> it seemed wrong to not have Kyle with us here today. So oh yeah, um, I really appreciate the invitation. No, this is fascinating. Any anytime I can talk, I can chat with somebody about DNS. Please invite me. I, I will absolutely <laughs> do that every time. <laughs> You'll get that email. Um, cool. Well, well, thank you. Thank you all so much. And I hope everyone has listened to this point. I, I feel like this one is going to be one of those where people listen to the end. Good. Um, <laughs> so, so thank, yeah, thanks very much. And um, until next time, everyone. Thanks so much.